Welcome back, horror hounds, to Ghostman and Rivera's Horror Show Podcast. I'm Mike Ghostman Pickle. And I am James Rivera. Uh, before we get started on the news, we got some updates we want to tell you guys. Uh, first of all, with the show, we just finished our, our variety show, first season, on American Horrors. We had our season finale on 4th of July, and uh, the first half of it played on 4th of July, and then it's going to play, it played in its entirety on Friday night. On Friday night, July 5th, for Independence Day weekend. So we're going to be off the air for a couple of months on American Horrors. We're going to come back on September 13th, which makes a Friday the 13th. And when we come back, we're going to have a lot of exciting new material. We're also going to be working on getting out uh, Michael's latest, uh, Michael's project, Pay Up, a film that he uh, wrote and directed and I produced and assisted on. Yeah, we, we haven't uh, reported on that in the past couple of weeks because we had a little snag. We got the project files for the main edit uh, from the editor, and uh, it was too big for any of our computers. So we had to, we're having to borrow a laptop from the great Joaquin Silva, our cameraman. Yes. We're still working out the kinks. Yeah, and now that the uh, season is over, we can get right to work this coming week on pay up. So by the end of the week, Possibly the first couple of days the following week, we're going to have it completely done and sent to the sound designer to get a score and sound effects and all that good stuff. Hopefully everything goes very well. And so far, I'm very happy with the progress. So, And uh, like I said before, we already mapped out all the cuts we were going to do to tighten it up. And uh, I'm really excited about season two because uh, I went to the uh, last weekend, I went to the mountains up near Big Bear with Gargoyle Media, and I helped them produce their horror short, Nine Lives, so that will be coming up in uh, season two. I did sound on it, and I assisted in producing, and I also played the monster in it. I play a really cool, grotesque monster with blood and human organs and all that, so it's going to be a fun short. So look forward to that. And I'm really excited that it was filmed on a red camera. Which is probably going to be the highest quality looking thing that's ever aired on a television show. I mean, we've worked with 4K and HD, but red cameras are impressive as hell. Yeah, so that was that was a great shoot and a great bonding experience with the Gargoyle Media people. Uh, we went on a four-mile hike up into the mountains. That got kind of scary because <laughs> we took a wrong turn. I think we were supposed to loop back earlier in the hike and we just kept going deeper into the woods so i had to so get us out of there michael pickle almost ended up in his own version of the blair witch project yeah <laughs> but luckily he made it out alive uh clarence from gargoyle media kept saying this is how the horror films start <laughs> you guys are taking us right into horror film <laughs> only appropriate for a horror for, uh, for a horror film shoot that's our updates for everything coming up on the horror show so stay tuned We'll probably be showing reruns over the uh, through fall, and then September thirteenth, which will be a Friday the thirteenth, yeah. we're going to return. So tune into American Horrors the Roku channel. If you missed our show, we're going to be airing the reruns all summer. You'll be able to see it on that channel, probably yes. on Friday nights and possibly airing throughout the week. And you get to catch up on everything we've been doing. Yeah, and we were concentrating on releasing that final episode, so we never found out what the hell was on American Horrors last week when we played that. 
So we still got to find that out for next weekend. We also didn't get a chance to to do our horror homework or horror to be roulette movies that we picked last week. But uh, we'll be getting to that in a couple weeks. Yeah, only because next week we are going to be doing <clears throat> our women in horror podcast with Susie Block, and we're going to have a lot to discuss. No time for anything else. Uh, and without further ado, let's get to the news. Horror show news. Andre Overdahl's upcoming scary, mo- stary- scary Stories to Tell in the Dark gets a PG-13 rating. New season of Scream is coming to VH1 July 8th. Uh, the Rabid remake from the Soska Sisters is having its world premiere at Fright Fest. Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass coming to Netflix. And the Lost Boys pilot denied by the CW. The Walking Dead comic book comes to an unexpected end. And Stranger Things 3 hits Netflix on 4th of July. Midsommar released in theaters. Yes, uh, Andre Overdahl's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Tell in the Dark. This is one of my most anticipated uh, horror films of this year. It got a PG-13 rating officially for terror, violence, disturbing images, thematic events, language... Thematic elements. Thematic elements, language including racial epithets, epithets, and a brief sexual references. Uh, Overdahl says, the director, there's no blood in this movie, and he describes it as Amblin-esque, and he says, we didn't, go, we didn't want to go too young, but we wanted to honor the fact that the books are for a younger audience. We wanted to honor the material and the stories. This isn't a surprise to me, because Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was always aimed at, younger, uh, at a younger generation of people, and yeah. I used to read them growing up. You can even find them in school libraries. And while they're really sinister, there's nothing overtly inappropriate. Granted, you don't come from a family of crazy religious people or a family who likes to censor everything. Uh, So I'm going to be looking forward to this, too. Hopefully it's scary because with PG-13 horror movies, they have to work a lot harder for their scares. Yeah. Because they can't rely on other devices that you could get away with in a rated R movie. Though I have to say, the description of why it's rated PG-13 sounds like it could, could be a rated R movie. Yeah. In all honesty. Well, because of Autopsy of Jane Doe, that was rated R, uh, my first instinct was to be disappointed that it was PG-13. But then I immediately thought, I've loved these stories since I was a little kid. And they were appropriate for a little kid. Pretty scary. I mean, the, the stories themselves are pretty scary. And this... Uh, uh, director has proven himself to be a competent horror movie director, so I, I have no doubt that this is going to be a, a great little horror movie. Well, I'm looking forward to it. The trailers definitely look effective. The new season of Scream is coming to VH1 July 8th. The third season, titled Scream Resurrection, acts as a reboot with the original ghost face design and the original voice, and it stars Mary J. Blige and is being produced by Queen Latifah. Yeah. This is the first time I've actually been looking forward to the Scream series because I saw some of the original. I never finished it. I mean, the original television series that entered on MTV. Yeah. And it seemed to me like a generic teen slasher. It didn't really feel like Scream, in my opinion. It didn't have that flavor. I got to see a new trailer, a trailer for the new season, and it seems, to, it seems like it hues closer to what Scream was, being a parody of, of horror movies. Yeah. And this one acknowledges itself as a reboot, and you can see that in a lot of the clips and the previews that it's a, it's a self-aware film. I'm not sure if the Scream series exists in this universe because one of the characters identifies Ghostface on the phone as being Ghostface while watching 
the reboot of Halloween. Yeah, it wasn't clear if they were in the Scream universe or they were in a universe where the Scream movies exist. Yeah, that's what I, that's going to make it pretty interesting. I imagine it's going to be a universe where the Scream movies exist, but overall it seems to have the spirit of the original idea and you can't go wrong with the original design and the original voice. I'll be checking it out. It's going to be airing over three days. It's not having a typical release where it's uh, weekly episodes. VH1 is going to air it July 8th, 9th, and 10th. Six episodes, two episodes a night. So uh, a three-night event with two, uh, two hours for each night. Well, I did think the, the MTV series was pretty solid, but mostly because it overcame a deficit of I thought it was going to be crap. And then I watched it. Well, I, well, this isn't crap. It, it wasn't great, and it and it didn't really. I don't think it really captured the uh, the spirit of the Scream movie. But I, I thought it was a solid little slasher show. But this one definitely looks better. It m- looks more in the spirit of Scream, and, and I like how they address reboots and and how they they show that they're going to integrate the discussion of reboots into the show. And even in the trailer, uh, no, it was a, a little teaser, a little sample of of the show. It showed one of the characters watching the Halloween reboot. Which is appropriate because in the original screen, they were watching the original Halloween. So it seems to line up thematically. I was a little skeptical just because I wasn't a big fan of the original series, but this one looks like it might be something to look forward to if you like the original screen films. And also Mary J. Blige, she's she's mostly known as a singer, but she is a competent actress. She was nominated for an Oscar recently. I actually don't know. I didn't see the film that she was nominated for, so I have no... I have no comments, but hopefully she does good in this. And is a, a prominently African American cast, right? Yeah, mostly, and that makes it uh, gives it, I guess, an interesting spin. Most of the characters, at least, I think, I only saw like one or two white characters. Yeah. On the in the trailer, but it looks really good. The the trailer was pretty solid. It seemed like it was going to be a good storytelling. And also, uh, next we got the Rabbit remake from the Soska sisters from the American Mary film. Uh, Fright Fest is the biggest horror film festival in the UK. It's from August 22nd to August 26th, and it's going to show a record-breaking 78 films. So even if if you were to attend this festival, there's no way you'd get to see all of the films. It's so jam-packed that you could not watch 78 movies within the span of five days, no matter how hard you tried. So... This um, That just shows how much horror is thriving, in my opinion, because that's a lot of horror movies coming out, and it's going to be hard to get around to all of them. But hopefully we'll hear from the festival. We usually hear from festivals what the standouts are, yeah. what the bombs are, what's good, what's not. So we'll be keeping up with this festival to see what the hype is and what the, what the consensus is about the best films to emerge from the festival. And I'm excited to see anything from Soska Sisters even though they did the the Hear No Evil sequel, I guess they did the best they could with that material. Kind of yeah, with that material. So I wish they were doing something original, but I'll take Rabbit. It's it's kind of ripe for a remake. I kind of wish they would do something original too, but given that that the Rabbit comes from David Cronenberg, arguably the king, the originator of body horror, it only makes sense that people who have the sisters who have basically taken up that mantle of body horror specializing in that would be remaking a David Cronenberg film. Yeah, and I think that, that American Mary, when it came out, is the, the new go-to body horror film, especially in modern horror films. And it wasn't like David Cronenberg's films, which also made it interesting. It didn't feel like it was ripping off, even though that's an obvious influence on them. Yeah. They don't seem to be ripping it off or imitating what David Cronenberg did, more like they, they're inspired by it. So I'm hoping this will be really successful and then they'll follow that up with another original. 
film. Let's get another American Mary. I'm down for that. Yeah. Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass is coming to Netflix. Flanagan and Trevor Macy signed a multi-year deal with Netflix. Midnight Mass will be coming right after The Haunting of Bly Manor, which is uh, actually the follow-up to The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, The synopsis is, Midnight Mass will tell the story of an isolated community plagued by terrifying omens even as they see miraculous events unfold before their eyes in the wake of a young priest moving to town. I'm looking forward to anything Mike Flanagan does, to be honest, because he's been on a roll, and I've liked pretty much everything he's produced, and I think he actually gets better every time Every time he makes a new film. I see the skills progress. Yeah. I just don't know how he does this all, because he did a whole series of television, like a whole season. He just finished Doctor Sleep, which is another Stephen King adaptation, and he had just came off of Gerald's Game when he did The Haunting of Hill House. He has another season of that show called The Haunting of Blind Manor coming up, and he's going to be doing another TV show. That sounds like a lot. Yeah, and I'm I'm just as excited for his TV series coming coming up as I am his movies because they're they're both match in the high quality. Yeah, definitely. I don't see any di- I don't see any difference between his, the Haunting of Hill House or the films that he makes. He doesn't seem to differentiate. Yeah, with, with when he's directing it. He's the kind of director you can trust. To, he's going to tell you a good story, and he's going to do something original. Uh, and the Lost Boys pilot denied by the CW. We actually reported on this a while back, <laughs> and we thought it was funny that it was even being tried. But this makes it even more of a farce. So Deadline reports that. Not all, quote, not all elements in the pilot came together in the execution, including the casting. So what they did was all but two actors were left out of the uh, restructuring of the show. Uh, The reworked pilot is filming at the end of the year. I said it before, and I'm not afraid to admit it again. I can't stand the CW or the types of shows or the content that they produce. I think it's pretty trite and kind of lame. So if they rejected this as not being up to snuff, I can only imagine how bad it was if you don't meet the CW standards. I know. (laughs) So to be honest, the, the whole concept just seems like you're just trying to milk or squeeze something to get a buck out of a established franchise. So, Well, at first I thought maybe, just maybe, it's too scary and too intense for the CW, but judging, judging by the, the nature of the... The complaints? Yeah, it doesn't yeah, sound like... It doesn't sound like it's the content. They said it's the execution, including the casting, and they got rid of actors. Yeah. So that says a lot about it. To be honest, it's a project that really never needed to be na- made. We don't need a reboot of The Lost Boys. There's no point in trying to do that except banking on the 80s nostalgia craze that's co- that's been gripping the country. So I'm okay with this. And hopefully, I don't know. I really actually don't care. I mean, if it comes to pass, good for them yeah. on a creative, but it's not something I really have an interest in watching. Yeah, I'm completely following it in an ironic way just to, just to get a kick out of the, the whole process of them trying to get this awful idea going off the ground <laughs> at the cw which makes it even more of a comedy the walking <clears throat> dead comic has come to an end so the walking dead has been running for about 15 years and they just released the last issue without any warning at all most of the fans and the readers of the comic were not even aware that the upcoming issue was the finale so they threw a curveball they th- they threw the audience a curveball and apparently in the penultimate issue, the one before this one, Rick Grimes actually dies, like officially. So now that the Walking Dead comic has come to an end, 
I wonder if it's time for the show to come to an end because now they say people keep saying for years, well, they can keep it going forever because it's following a never-ending comic. Not anymore. It's yeah. over. So now you have a template and a way to end this off. Will AMC listen, or whether they're gonna, or are they gonna push this way past its expiration date? Well, I'm actually not sure how far they've gotten in the storyline on the show, in the storyline of the comic. So they could have quite a few seasons left out of those 15 years of comics. But at this point, I don't think it's a good idea. The show, every season, the ratings come back worse and worse. Even though it is a highly rated show and people still do watch it, it's down like 60% from its original audience, and each season keeps dropping more and more than the last one. So I just wonder if they're going to do it until it fizzles out or if they're going to try to go out strong and redeem it's redeem what it's been doing for the past few years. Because like I said, comic books and television are two completely different mediums. Yeah. And at some point, they're going to have to end the TV series. Well, my interest has definitely went down with the popularity, and it has nothing to do with... The popularity. Yeah, going the down popularity. Just the quality. Is, and I don't even know if it's the quality. It's just that I, I don't... Repetitive? As, yeah, I don't care as much about the storylines anymore. I, I don't like the ex- execution. I'm not sure where they're going wrong. I know that that new showrunner came in. I don't like some of the decisions she's made, but uh, we'll see what's what happens. It it could actually redeem itself next season. Who knows? But I really don't like the idea of of continuing it and doing movies with Rick Grimes. It just seems like overkill for for a show that was showing that it was already done. That's it's kind of declining. You know. Well. Now they have a template to end it. Let's see if they follow it this time. Stranger Things 3 hit Netflix on the 4th of July. And uh, I watched about uh, six episodes of it, and the Duffer Brothers have done it again. How it does is... it compare to season one and two? Parts of it are better. Parts of it are, are a bit the same as far as uh, the way the story unfolds and, mm-hmm. and the characters, but I like the way the characters are developing. I love the writing. The effects are top-notch. The story keeps it keeps the level of excitement throughout. I noticed halfway into the season, it built up to a really frenetic climax on that fourth episode. Then it kept going after that. Yeah, and then the the two episodes after that, it seems it seems like they're trying to get their footing again, and and build up the tension to lead into the climax. So I kind of understand that, but I, I really noticed that 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 the. Uh, uh, the first half of the season was just fucking phenomenal, like one long movie. And that, that I seen a definite climax in that fourth episode. That's interesting because the show, the season's also shorter than the previous ones. It's been like, what, 10 episodes per season, and this one is eight episodes? Yeah. I, I was going to watch it on the 4th of July, and I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit, admit this. I had a few drinks. I literally sat down with some cousins to sit down and watch Stranger Things. Within 15 seconds, 15 to 30 seconds, I just passed out on the couch. And when I woke up, woke up, they had already watched a few episodes. So I'll be catching up on that soon. I was a big fan of the, the first two seasons. It's a show I do follow and continue to look forward to following. So I'll let you know what I think next week. <laughs> but these Duffer brothers, they, they seem to find new ways to get you invested in the characters. They're, they're very patient with the character development. They're very patient with the story. I, I don't think they try to jump the gun too much and mm-hmm. and give you a lot at the beginning of the season. I, I think uh, the first couple episodes, there was a lot of uh, character development, a lot of uh, conflict between the characters before it really built up into the the sci-fi spectacle that we're used to, you know. 
Is it scary? How does the horror measure up in this one? Because the first season to me seemed a little bit scarier than the second season in this, its execution, in my opinion. For me, this one seems to be the scariest one so far with oh, the cool. most the most scary elements in it. Oh, hey, Adina. Oh, hi, guys. So we have on the show with us right now Adina Pickle. She is Hi. actually our makeup artist for a horror show that airs on American Horrors, as well as for various other projects that we work on. How are you doing, Adina? I'm good. How are you guys doing today? Pretty good. So we're going to have Adina sitting in on our next news story. It's that Midsommar is released in theaters. Hi, I'm Elliot. You're listening to Ghost Man and Rivera's Horror Show Podcast. This is something that Mike and I have been looking forward to for a very long time. Highly anticipated and one of my most anticipated horror movie releases of the year. And I have to say, I really liked it, though I, did, I didn't like it in the way that I expected to like it. And it, drew, it knocked me for a loop. This really played with my expectations. It just blew me away in every way, uh, including it being exactly like I thought it was going to be, but nothing like I thought it was going to be. In some ways, it's not terribly original and we've all seen cult films where an innocent person goes to a cult at first it seems all nice and friendly and then slowly as sinister things start to happen you realize that it's not it's basically a boilerplate formula but it's in the execution where most of the original originality comes from and i think from the characters and the performances because it's a very emotionally complex layered film that delves into the into the mechanics, the specifics of relationships, relationships, specifically romantic relationships and the decline of romantic relationships and what goes wrong in them. And it really explores emotionally uncomfortable territory in the same way that Hereditary uh, tackled the grief of losing a child. This one uh, tackles the breakdown of a failing relationship in a way that gets under your skin and the horror only serves to elevate this aspect and make the relationships even the relationship even more uncomfortable. And it's it's very clear that it's the director of Hereditary. It's obvious from the first 10 15 minutes that if you've seen Hereditary, it is most definitely from the same mind, same sensibility, same style, the uncomfortable uh, the gnawing anguish of emotions that you're used to seeing in his films and in his short films actually. Yeah. And in, in some ways, it was similar to Hereditary, and in some ways, it was completely opposite. For instance, in, in Hereditary, there was this intense family drama going on, but there's this permeating sense of evil throughout the whole thing. You just feel like something evil is, is just running through the whole narrative. Mm-hmm. And then this one was just the opposite for me. It started out scary. I was getting very scary and anxious, for especially the main character. And then when the horrific things start happening, it gets less scary. And there's something about the... That initially bothered me while I was watching it. And yeah. And I, I had this weird reaction where I'm like, the things are revving up and we're seeing more disturbing imagery than we have up to this point in the movie. And it's more shocking imagery than anything in Hereditary. Yeah. I think it's more overtly over the top and it's objectively sinister and disturbing. But I found myself not getting scared of it like I should. I'm like, I don't understand the elements all there, the imagery, the way it's shot, the quality of it. And as it went along, I started to see that this movie was heading in a different direction than I originally thought. It's it's a whole it's 
a unique way of approaching a horror movie that I've never quite seen. And I don't want to give spoilers for the film because as simple as it is, there's a lot of things that happen in this movie. But it wouldn't be fair to me to spoil it for the audience because you should see this. Yeah. Uh, you should go and seeing this fresh, I think. But for me, the, the scariness and the tension built up. And then it got to a point where the scariness and the tension and the evil turned somehow into love and positivity and connectedness. See, and I felt those feelings all the while watching these horrific images and these horrific violent things happen. What did you think of it, Adina? Well, I, I have to agree with you guys. So definitely, um, you can totally tell us from the director of Hereditary, there was just a lot of just... Emotionally damaging moments. Yeah, emotionally damaging moments. There was some of the scenes that made me feel a certain way, um, just like the opening, like one of the opening credit kind of things made me feel really like just strange and it was just something very minor on the screen. It just just messed with my mind. Uh, everything just looks really beautiful, the way it was shot. And some of the some of the images that should have been more disturbing, I like tried to like break it down and find a logical explanation for it, even though my mind was like, What did that just happen? And then several things there was a lot of I can't believe that just happened moments. So yeah, it was very a very good movie. So did you get that similar feeling that I got when it's you're feeling this love and this positivity and this connectedness, but you're watching them do horrible things? Did you get that same feeling, or was it disturbing you while those things were happening? I have to agree with you. At the <clears throat> beginning, I was more, like, worried and scared the whole time, like, what was going to happen. And then after, it just kind of eased up. And, you know, I, I did see the horrific things, but at the same time, I just was feeling the like the love of the atmosphere, even though a lot of disturbing stuff was still going on and happening to certain people in the movie, even though, you know, you know, for other people it wasn't happening, but it was, it was very intense and I want to actually watch it again. So that way I can see if I missed anything, but lots of stuff to look around at, uh, pay attention, you know, to background scenes and everything and images. They just, they really do blow your mind. Yeah, because there's beautiful images that that carry you uh, carry the story through, and there's also some surreal images uh, that drug induced kind of images if, that really and trip you. I out. gotta uh, be impressed. I don't really feel this is much of a spoiler, but the characters in the movie do take shrooms at some point and have psychedelic experiences. And if you've ever actually taken shrooms or had psychedelic experiences, Mike and I both have done before. It was pretty damn spot on the first room trip in the terms of how people approach it, the way that the imagery is, the way that it makes the grass and the trees look like they are breathing yeah. or look like part of it reminds me a lot of my experience with shrooms, the the way that people feel, the things that people say, both good and bad. Some people are enjoying it and some people not are not. Yeah. Seem very accurate to the point where I'm convinced, I am pretty positive that Ari Aster himself has indulged in psychedelics because you could not have done that so accurately if you don't know what the experience of psychedelics is actually like. Yeah, in order to translate it that well visually mm -hmm. in a cinematic way, you had to have done it before. Cause yeah, it, it, it rung true for what the experience is like for me. And during those sequences in the movie, it gave me a very similar feeling to actually being on them. Yeah. Which, which is rare for a movie to achieve. Uh, Mandy kind of did that. Kind of gave me the feeling of... But of, this is a little like more a subtle. Trip. Yeah. You know what I, I found interesting <clears throat> about the, the lighting is this is probably the brightest lit horror movie since The Shining. Yeah. And 
it's even brighter where some of it is almost like overexposed. I felt like I got the feeling of overexposure where everything is so funny. It's so funny. So um, bright and so clean and like yeah. overly clean and almost like shimmeringly beautiful. Yeah. I didn't get the same sense of love, but I got a sense of tranquility. And there's definitely a lot of moments that are funny. And I'm pretty sure it's intentional. I don't think that it's an accident or it's not funny in a way like, oh, that was supposed to be scary and it landed or it flopped or it failed. It actually was funny in a way that's really darkly comic. And I'm pretty sure a lot of the humor in this movie is intentional. Especially with the main character's boyfriend, Christian, played by Jack Rayner. He was just a joke. Mm -hmm. I mean, so much of a joke of a character of a person that every time he appeared on screen, I kind of giggled a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I like... This guy is going to say something infuriatingly dumb Stupid. or or mean-spirited or something, and he totally acts oblivious that he's that kind of a person. He, he kind of fucks over his friends. He fucks over his girlfriend. He's kind of half-interested in her, in her. She's too much of a person for him, too much woman for him. But I love the way she's portrayed because she, she's... The, the movie opens and she's terribly weak and fractured, and then the something happens that even breaks her down even farther. So, you, so the movie starts out its narrative with your main character at the bottom, at her her lowest. Spiraling down even <clears throat> worse. And what's interesting is that it. I've heard a lot of people say that the film... Like it is over... Or, or people say that, oh, the guy was a complete asshole and there was all... And it, 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 it was all on him that she did nothing wrong. I don't really agree with that interpretation. I do think he was an asshole and most of it was his fault. And he didn't know how to handle things and he should have gotten out of that relationship if he wasn't interested in actually, you know, actually being there. On the same token, before she has her breakdown, you get the sense that she's overly needy. And especially to someone who doesn't deserve that sort of neediness is almost annoying where I do think that the film does lay some of the blame. It's not imbalanced, even though a lot of times in a relationship it might be one person's fault. It yeah. doesn't lay it all there. You get the sense that she contributed to the decline of their relationship as well. Not to the same extent, and she's not nearly as bad, but you could tell that some of it drove, she drove a little bit of a wedge in her own relationship too. But and I like the, the complexity of that. Yeah, uh, some of the horrific uh, drama that was in her life kind of translated to uh the how needy she was mm -hmm. it, it was it was uh it translated to how she was treated by her boyfriend and it also translated to why she was so susceptible to the the um influence of this cult mm -hmm. and to be honest with you i kind of was i mean, that, that's where i get got the the loving and the connectedness feeling of it because even while i was being shown horrific images i was thinking this might be something I'd like to get lost in, you know, just just on the the pure um, I think the merit the only, of how it made me feel. I, I can see <clears throat> that, but the only reason be, being is that the cult, I don't get the sense that they even think that they're sinister yeah. or evil. You get the sense that they what they're doing is actually pretty normal to them. What they're up to doesn't to them doesn't seem overtly sinister, so they don't act in ways that are sinister or they they you could tell that they're twisted and they're evil, but they actually do believe that what they're doing is good or it's right. And it's not, yeah. but it definitely gives it an interesting take because none of the characters act overtly sinister at any point or time during the movie. So I really want to know from Ari Aster 
if he if how much of this was purposeful as far as the character development and how it made me feel like did you mean to make me feel this love and acceptance of these people who were doing horrible things right in front of my eyes i i, I just love to know I, I have a feeling he did do it on purpose because mm-hmm. he he loves to play with expectations he loves to play with your emotions and and uh uh you know how you how you think it's going to go he 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 shows it to you and and it happens in a way you think it's going to happen and then it does something completely different that makes you feel a completely different way at than what you're watching on screen at some way in the midway point i almost <clears throat> in some way at the midway point i almost started to lose uh, I started to uh, feel a vague sense of disappointment sink in a little bit because as much as I was enjoying it, none of it was scaring me or feeling. And then once it goes further, I realize why it wasn't and what they were up to the entire time. So on on a rewatch, I imagine it's not going to have the same effect on me knowing where it's supposed to be going. Yeah, I was ready to see the scariest cult movie I've ever seen. I Because I, I've seen a lot of really good scary cult films like this, like uh, The Sacrament and Children of Sorrow and stuff like that. So I was expecting to see the scariest, but then I was kind of disappointed too when I got about halfway through and I realized the fear was leaving me, mm-hmm. but it wasn't because of what I was being shown, it's because of how he was making me feel. He was making me feel less scared, but he was still sc- showing me horrific images. Adina, do you feel that by the end of the movie you were a little bit disturbed because... I feel like towards the end, because it, like Michael said, you you might get a sense of love off of it because of the behavior of the sinister people who are don't actually act sinister. Do you think by the end it started becoming a little bit more disturbing again? Uh, yeah, I definitely would agree that at the end it started getting a little bit more disturbing. But in the middle, like where Mike was saying that it looked all pure and how you also explained that it looked almost... Too bright or too beautiful. Too beautiful. They just look really pure. And basically, I think like you were saying that they are doing horrific things. But I think in their little cult or culture, they don't feel like they're doing anything inappropriate. And everybody's just raised that way, so they don't know any better. Mm -hmm. And then you know, some of them actually venture off into the real world, and you know, want to bring other people and to see this. But at the same time, it's you know. It's a bit overwhelming for people that don't know what's about to happen or go down. Oh, so, yeah. But other than that, yeah, it was very, it reminded me very pure, but then at the end it started getting sinister twisted again. and sinister. And even at the last image, it was just like, oh, man. wow. The really? last image is not something I'm going to spoil, but something that probably is going to stay with me for a very long time. Yeah. And it's the actress, Florence Pugh, who's only 23 years old. Was born in 1996. Beautiful girl. Holy shit, she can fucking act. Because I swear to God, I don't really feel the, the emotional maturity seems some seems to come from somebody who is beyond that. And I yeah. was shocked to learn she was 23, not because she doesn't look young, just because the performance seemed a little bit too mature for somebody at that age. And yeah, I I couldn't take my eyes off of her beauty, and I I was so compelled by her struggle. And her acting just pulled me into her world, and I just loved every minute. It, he he took another uh, uh, great uh, female character and just really let her shine the way he let Tony Collette shine in Hereditary. I feel like their poor performances actually per- perfectly complement each other because they both anchor their movies in the same way. Yeah, and they both ask a lot of them. They both ask their the actors to go to very 
dark emotional places that most people would probably rather not explore. Yeah, where they're both grief stricken to the point of catatonia almost. I'd say that the movie at times is a little bit more unsettling and uncomfortable than it is outright scary, just because the bright idyllic nature of it uh, juxtaposed against the objectively disturbing, horrifying things that are uh, happening and going on will probably leave a lot of audiences a little bit more queasy and uncomfortable than actually scared. And I'm pretty sure that that might be intentional. And I'll be honest with you, there seems to be, we've talked about it, there's always a backlash against, like, what you call art house horror movies like The Witch and Hereditary and uh, the remake of Suspiria. And this definitely falls under their category. And I have seen some backlash to it. But I'm surprised how well audiences are responding to this because this seems to be much, much less mainstream than Hereditary. Yeah. In my view, it seems almost an anti-mainstream film that's not friendly to mainstream audience expectation. So I'm actually a little bit shocked that it's being as well-received as it is by regular people. Yeah, I almost expected the same type of backlash with that Hereditary got because Hereditary came out and it got a high critic score, but... Very low, like very low audience scores, like twenty to forty percent, and this one's up to sixty, seventy percent. Oh yeah, about seventy percent, which I have to say surprises me. It just shows I don't really understand audiences, and I can't really predict what people are gonna like or not because this to me seems like something that it would be more off-putting to regular, mono, uh, regular average audience members than Hereditary would. Well, it also has a lot of beautiful visuals, a lot of surreal visuals. And also uh, a lot of brutality, a lot of uh, gore, up close gore, which he loves. He loves to go. He loves for the gore to come out of nowhere, and then go right in close to it and focus and on linger it. on it longer than than you probably should. Yes, past the point where it starts to become uncomfortable. And if you've seen Hereditary, you know what I'm talking about with yeah. the scene with the head with the little girl's head. Yeah, lying on the lying in the middle of a street while ants just ravage it and it looks disturbing. Yeah. There's a lot more imagery like that in this one and it kind of lingers on it. And there's a lot of sexual perversion and weird, just a lot of strange things happening. And the sexual perversion is presented in the same way that the violence is. I thought like, the, the, in a beautiful way. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Yeah. In the most awkward way. I'm not going to describe, but there's some strange rituals are there that are so bizarre and so deeply strange that I couldn't help but laugh at some of it. And I don't think it was like a bad laugh, like how stupid that is. It's just so weird that it's kind of hard not to just chuckle a little bit at yeah. the absurdity of what's actually taking place. And I love how good Ari Aster is at putting very complex characters, very nuanced characters, right beside some completely vapid and empty characters that you just hate. Mm-hmm. And it, it's... Will Poulter is one of the worst, his character yeah. in that movie. He's just a... F- fucking empty soulless prick you know just a crude individual that doesn't seem to have much depth or character or complexity at all yeah besides the main character danny uh josh played by william jackson harper mm-hmm. was it really the only other character that had any type of redeeming qualities and he wasn't that deep he wasn't as deep as the main character but he but. seemed to be slightly aware that something was going on underneath the surface, and he almost came across as investigative to me. Like he, yeah. knew, like he knew something was wrong with this place, but he was playing his cards close to his chest to try to not, so you didn't see it on the surface. 
but he seemed like he was calculating or planning. And I'm not going to ruin where that storyline goes. Yeah. But it go that that's that's probably one of the more interesting or complex characters. But while while Christian was overly oblivious of everything, mm-hmm. you know, it was it seems so weird. It it almost seems like a weak character, but I know it's not. I know he meant to put him in there like that. And I wonder if he named him Christian on purpose. Like I wonder if he's trying to expose some of the ignorance that or run, hypocrisy and hypocrisy her. that runs through Christianity. I wouldn't doubt it. Okay, so I think um, it's um, we're not going to say what happens, but we know that the male character is put through the ringer on this movie, uh, and you could see that the movie does side a little bit with Florence Pugh more on her side, and justifiably so based on the nature of what's going on and behalf. Happening, do you think he was treated a fairly Adina? Do you feel that he got what was that he he deserved his experiences and what was coming to him? Well, I could kind of tell like from the beginning of the movie, he I can understand how he was just already like kind of already over the relationship, but he was just like lingering it on, dragging it on. So when they got out there, you know, I could just tell that he was just like, you know, it was just kind of about himself. He didn't really give up. He didn't really care about her anymore. Like certain things, like deliberately forgetting certain stuff and, you know, and her basically looking at him like, you know, you don't even have to do this anymore because you could just see the, the emptiness in the relationship. It was just like almost like two strangers and he was just so just wrapped about himself very and, selfish and you know self-absorbed. And yeah selfish self-absorbed and you know just after what he wanted for himself and you know just to step on whoever he had to or just toss people aside that he didn't really care about but do you feel sympathy for him at all or oh, no, no not at all not at I all okay just sympathy. wanted to check i mean yeah it's a bit dark at the end and i i shouldn't be so twisted but at the same time i was like fuck that guy yeah pretty much <laughs> fuck that guy yeah, because there, there seemed like there was. It seemed like there was more to him at first. And like, all right, let's see what because happens with this character. But you, the more you find out about him, the l- worse. Yeah, the more you find out about him, the less you like him, and the the less of a person that he is. And, and to be honest, I didn't really hate him the way that a lot of people did who watch this movie initially. Initially, there was just something that he did at a certain point in the movie that I looked at him and was like, this fucker. And I'm not going to tell what it is, but it's something that his casual dismissiveness and his willingness to just fuck over his friends without any sort of... It doesn't even seem that it registers to him Registers to him what he's doing is wrong, and he acts arrogant about it. That's yeah. when it became crystal clear. And that's another thing is, like, it doesn't present him as being all shitty all at once. It very gradually relieves what an empty, selfish person he is through the course of the movie. Whereas the Will Poulter, Will Poulter character comes across as a fucking moron, a despicable yeah. moron right from the get-go. And the, the uh, Christian ended up being like almost dull and glassy-eyed where he just seemed like w- once it got too overwhelming for him, too absurd, it seemed like he just turned off emotionally. What's the actor who played Christian? What's his name? Jack Rayner. I got to give him a lot of credit, too, because they made him do something. They made his character. They made him do some things that would make you it, that would put you in a vulnerable state as an actor. Yes. And he delivered. He did. He was called upon to do a lot and to really. I don't know. I don't want to say what he has to go through, but he was called upon to do a lot. And I'd say he delivered 
on on that part where you're supposed to hate him. Yeah. But the things that the director Ari Aster asked him to do are things that would be difficult or hard for any actor to have to go through on camera or on screen. Yeah, he, he's almost embarrassingly vapid and uh, one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I just hated him, but I know Ari Aster made made him that way. Made me laugh. <laughs> and I, I really appreciated the performance. <laughs> I'm like... You were almost like the sacrificial lamb of the movie, the one that was designed to be hated and put through all these awful ordeals. And because when you're in a film, when you're making a film, you actually have to do some of the things that you're depicting. So while it is fictional, he is actually doing certain things on screen that would be uncomfortable, I imagine, for any actor to have to endure or go through. Yeah. So I really liked all the, per- especially Florence Pugh, but he did a great job too. Will Poulter was a, an asshole, a believable asshole. I'll say that about him. Yeah, and then the the Josh character, William Jackson Harper, was kind of a uh, in the middle. Like he he wasn't completely empty, but he, but he wasn't uh, as rich of a character. Yeah, and I think that was all purpose purposeful. So I would say that I think people should go out and check out Midsommar. However, be aware that what you're getting into is not a typical horror film. And it's not even, like, don't expect anything. Just go for along the ride and enjoy it and see where it's heading. And let the director's vision, uh, like, just take over on you. Because if you go expecting something or another hereditary, you're going to be really disappointed. Because this is not another hereditary. This is something, a completely different animal. Even though it's very obviously from the same mind and sensibilities. It will play around with your expectations all the way to the end. So, phenomenal film, in my opinion. And it shows that Ari Aster is is a filmmaker who has a very, very bright future in the horror genre. Definitely. So, thank you very much for sitting in with us, Adina. As as long as we're on the subject of Midsommar, we're going to go right into the subject of 2019 horror films. We're about halfway through the year. So we're going to discuss everything we've seen so far in 2019, uh, a few things that we might have missed, a few notable horror films, and also what we're looking forward to the most. And Midsommar was one of my most anticipated movies of the year, so that hit a big home run for me. What about you, Adina? Um, it really did. I was looking forward to seeing it, so I'm, I'm glad that we did get a chance to check it out right away. And it. And we all saw it together, Yeah, actually, we all saw it together. On the so. first screening. The yeah, very def- first screening. Definitely. So we all got to see it together, and I'm, I'm glad we did that at that time so I can, you know, be up par with everybody else and not be in, in, the, in the dark. <laughs> so again, thank you, Adina, and everybody watch out for her on season two of Pickles Horror Show where she will be doing some more great makeup work. Thank you so much for having me on. You guys have a great night. Thank you for your time, Adina. Listen to this podcast or I'll gut you. Well, we just got a message in the middle of a pot of our podcast from our from Hart D. Fisher, the owner of American Horrors, and we had just said that uh, we were going to announce next week what we were watching because we couldn't figure out on last week's podcast. He let us know what it was. It was a film called Messiah of Evil. Yeah. So the way we were describing it last week is pretty batshit insane when we turned it on. So if you like the way we described it, then you now you know the name of it, so you can seek it out. Just like anything else on American Horrors. Yeah. Now, back to our list of 2019 horror. Um, uh, before we get to the list of uh, 2019 horror real quick, I, I do have some 2019 horror that I watched, but it was a TV show. So besides Stranger Things, 
I watched the first episode of Nosfora 2. And I also watched a couple of episodes of Swamp Thing, which were both very good. Oh, okay. So there's been some good horror television, too. I know we tend to concentrate more on movies because there's more of them, but we try to cover horror television as well, or anything in horror at all, period. Yeah. And uh, Nosfora 2 is a uh, Joe Hill story. We talked about Joe Hill, uh, Stephen King's son, last week. Uh, I'm digging it so far. I'm just th- through the first episode, like I said, but uh, just a sup- couple of slight problems with it. Um, there's this character that plays a medium, and she's actually a really good character. She's really intelligent and really effective character as a medium. But uh, she does her um, uh, premonitions and stuff by throwing these uh, Scrabble pieces down. And they kind of spell out different things that, that lead her in, in the right direction. Well, she has these uh, scra- little Scrabble pieces, earrings, that say F-U. So it seems to not fit her character. And with that same character, she shows up at a crime scene. And she kind of just walks into the middle of the cops and picks up a candy cane, which is the first clue. Like she's Batman. Yeah, so I'm not sure why she, <laughs> why she was allowed to walk onto a crime scene and grab a candy cane. That's, that's a significant piece of evidence right there. Mm, yeah. So, but besides that, the lead actress, Ashley Cummings, is really good. The drama is really good. Uh, the horror is, uh, um, is being unfolded at a nice little pace. Uh, Zachary Quinto plays the... Um, Zachary Quinto, I believe. Quinto. Quinto. Zachary Quinto, who played Spock in the Star Trek films, he is the villain in it. He plays a very good villain, and it's on AMC. So so far, so good. Well, if you've seen American <gasps> Horse, well, if you've seen American Horror Story season two, you know that he can play a good villain. Yes, for sure, and he continues that tradition on this one. So, what do you think of the other two episodes of Swamp Thing? I really. <clears throat> I really like it. I like where it's uh, where it's going, and I'm enjoying it. There are a couple of times where the CGI does look a little bit questionable, but considering it's television and the budgets, I think it's pretty good for where for what it is. It. I'm just a little upset that I'm not going to get that we're not going to get a conclusion to the saga. Are you getting more pissed with each episode that it's canceled? No. No, only because I've resigned to my I've resigned myself to the fact that it's already canceled and just have accepted that I'm just going to sit and go along with where it's going for now. Okay. So, I've accepted it as what it is. So, so far so good on that one so as well. So far so good. And I still haven't finished Chambers. I will, I will report back on that. But uh the last couple episodes I saw were kind of not filler, but like a step above filler. Oh, okay. Like a kind of filler but entertaining filler. So we'll see where the season leads after that. But besides the TV, we're going to start talking about the movies of 2019. Uh, We'll start out with what we've seen so far. And I've seen about 14 horror films of this year so far. And I've liked exactly five of them. And one of them is not even horror. So I really only like four out of 14 horror films I've seen this year. It's because you're a cynicist. (laughs) So what did you? Uh, so let's give our audiences the list of what the major releases of horror so far in 2019. Horror show exclusive. Uh, okay, these are the ones that we've watched. Uh, one or both of us have watched. Both of us just watched Midsommar, as we just discussed. Probably the most significant horror release of the year thus far. Yeah. And the other significant horror release was Us. Us, that's the other significant horror release. I enjoyed... Mm. I enjoyed Us quite a bit. Michael didn't enjoy it as much as I did. 
Yeah, there's that one we were divided on. But it is it does represent a big step forward for horror and the career of Jordan Peele, and it solidifies horror as a mainstream staple with its with its success and the way that it entered the pop culture sphere so fast. Yeah. So regardless of whether you liked it or not, it's definitely good for horror. And believe it or not, even though I've only liked five out of the 14 films I've seen this year, I'm still excited about the rest of the year. I'm still excited about horror. I'm just glad that there's this many movies that I'm looking forward to, to see. And, and even even the one out of the ones I didn't like, it's just the sheer number of notable horror releases coming out I'm just excited for. One thing I wasn't very excited to watch, so much so that I watched uh, Happy Death Day 2. Actually, Happy Death Day to You. I watched it a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't even feel the need to review it <laughs> on the show. How dismissive. It's just not that good. I mean, anything good about it, it's not horror. I mean, all the good elements have nothing to do with the horror genre. It's basically a zany sci-fi caper, and complete with the cheesy montages and the music to go along with it. There's even a montage of the girl killing herself over and over again. And it's this, this, this happy music, and she's being all zany and killing herself in all different ways. It was just too little, uh, like too much of a teeny bopper, like a almost sci-fi channel quality movie. Uh, but it was a convoluted way to get the story going. It had cliche B-movie moments. The score was too over the top with big emotional music swells, even during the emotional scenes. Uh they did another, you know that folding paper thing that they did to explain time and space in hereditary, I mean, not hereditary, got hereditary in on Interstellar. In Interstellar? Yeah. They did that same thing, but even in a cheesier way. All right, let me explain it to you. You fold this piece of paper and you can go right there and, oh, shut up, dude. <laughs> it's enough already. Barely sounds like a horror movie. Yeah, and like I said, the, the silly montages of upbeat music, uh, random unexplained complications along the way for the for the protagonists, and it fails even worse as a slasher horror than the first one did. I thought the first one was a, it was actually a pretty effective comedy, and it was it was uh, led by a really good performance by the lead actress. And this was another good performance by her, but there was just not a great movie around her. It was just like I said, like a cheap sci-fi caper yeah. that you'd see on the Sci-Fi Channel. I, I wouldn't give it much more merit than that, but definitely the horror elements sucked. But it was a notable release of the year because it followed up on a very successful, whether you like it or not, a very successful horror film. Yeah. And another notable release that neither one of us liked, but some people seem to love, Pet Cemetery, the remake. Yeah, I really didn't like it at all. As, As far as horror in 2019 goes, that has been the biggest disappointment for me thus far. Mostly because I really enjoyed the filmmaker's original uh, last work at Starry Eye so much. So I was looking forward to something of the same quality or something. And I just didn't get it with the Pet Cemetery remake. And I, I, there were times where I actually considered walking out on it just because I had just lost interest in it. And it wasn't remotely scary. And it was a little bit dumb at times, to be honest. I yeah. really didn't like it. And I, I, wanted, I wanted those directors to do something else original after Starry Eyes. And then when I heard what they were doing, Pet Cemetery, I accepted it. I would rather see something original, but I accepted it thinking, okay, this is kind of ripe for another movie. It's not really a, a remake, even though they made it a remake. It didn't have to be. They could have went with the original source material instead of relying, relying so much on the original film. On the other hand, the film was a financial success. Yeah. So I 
So hopefully they'll use the success that they made with Pet Cemetery to make an original good horror film as their next project. I really hope so because that was a huge disappointment. But just like with us, I'm still excited to see the next film from these directors. Anything that's anytime horror is a success, whether a horror film is successful, whether or not you enjoy the film, it's always a good thing for the genre, and it's always a good thing for other filmmakers looking to fund original ideas. Yeah. So kudos on that. And then the next notable release that I've seen, James didn't get to see it yet. It's the the Curse of La Llorona, and. Uh, as I said before, I didn't really dislike it. Uh, I had my problems it. with it. Yeah, it's. I didn't like it enough to include it as one of the films that I like this year. Let's put it that way. Okay, that's fair. But nothing glaringly wrong with it. It wasn't horrible. It was just average. Yeah. And uh, up next we had Brightburn, which I seen. You, you didn't get to see that one either? No. You're not missing out on much. It's <laughs> another one I didn't enjoy at all. Too simple. That one was also... A commercial flop in addition to being a critical and audience flop. Yeah. Which was a surprise considering it combined superhero films and horror films into one, the two most successful mainstream genres at this point. Yeah. So that one was not good for horror for it to flop so badly. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And especially since it's the director of the con- upcoming Conjuring 3. So between Annabelle Comes Home, kind of ruining the Warrens for me, and this it being the director of The Curse of La Llorona, I'm not as excited as I once was for Conjuring 3. Uh, and uh, speaking of that, the next movie of this year was that we seen that I seen was Annabelle Comes Home. Well, you didn't enjoy <clears throat> it, Michael, and you gave it a very negative review on our podcast last week. We have to acknowledge the fact that it was financially successful, which is good, and it seems to have been well-received by most audience members, and it has a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's generally a well-reviewed, well-received, successful film. Yeah, this just baffles me. Yep. I mean, it, even the stuff I told you, it, it even sounds, when you say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous, and it was just as ridiculous when you see it on screen. So I don't know what the critics and the audiences are getting out of this, but more power to you. Enjoy it. I Enjoy. didn't like it at all. Yep. Uh, the next one that I really liked, uh, The Hole in the Ground. I talked about that one. That was another creepy kid movie that was very effective. Uh, not overly original, but definitely a very well-made film. Uh, one that James and I both loathed was Velvet Buzzsaw with Jake Gyllenhaal. That was a fucking disappointment on a scale that was hard for me to comprehend. Because uh, the, f- uh, the filmmaker forget his name but he did nightcrawler with jake gyllenhaal which is not a horror movie but he did that in 2014 and i love that movie i love the script yes i love the direction great writing and uh, jake gyllenhaal to me is just one of the finest actors of his generation he gave a fucking phenomenal performance in that movie he's scary and he should have been uh, nominated for an oscar for that film in my opinion he was robbed it's one of his very very best performances i agree so I was actually looking forward to the Velvet Buzzsaw because it's that director tackling horror in the art world, and it has Tony Collette in it. Jake Gyllenhaal and Tony Collette. How do you go wrong with those actors? Yeah, you and who else? Try- Rene Russo, who was also really good in uh, Nightcrawler. Yeah. God, this was... I hate to say it, and I don't... Like I said, I've talked about the podcast where I don't want to be trashing things. I just want to give my honest views or anything without disrespecting the filmmakers or people involved because even the shittiest of films or even bad films, there's a lot of effort, heart, and put into it. But for the life of me, 
there was not a single thing about that movie that I found enjoyable. I thought it was trite. The writing was bad. It meandered too long. It wasn't a very good look at the behind the scenes of the art world. Yeah. Uh, all of these fantastic actors are wasted. There's like maybe one scene in that movie that I found kind of effective, and it's the one involving Jake Gyllenhaal where that wax figure keeps getting closer and closer oh, yeah. to him. That was actually pretty effective. The rest of it, not at all. The gore scenes bored me. And for me, that has been the most, the worst horror film I've seen of 2019. In general, it's probably the worst film I've seen this year, the one that I've enjoyed the least and really just didn't get. So with all, with all due respect with apologies, this just movie was not for me in any way, shape, or form. Just so bad it was a chore to finish. Mm-hmm. And I only did it out of a sense of duty. So yeah. I could discuss it. <laughs> I think I put more effort into watching it than they did making the damn film. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but... <laughs> I might be exaggerating a little bit, but yeah, that's how much little, I disliked it. A <laughs> little hy- hyperbole never hurt here and there. Yeah. And as much as I liked... Uh, as much as I disliked Velvet Buzzsaw, that's how much I liked The Perfection. The Perfection was awesome. That one was actually a surprise because it wasn't too heavily advertised before it came out. It just kind of got a little promotional boost pretty fairly recently before it got before it got released yeah that one was a standout for me it was not a perfect movie like this title suggests the perfection yeah. but it's a damn good one and it takes you on such a it takes you on such an unpredictable route and it has such great lead performances it has a lot of intensity it upends the story upends your expectations at every turn and overall, it's just really well filmed. It's too bad that it, it, it for me. It's too bad that it didn't get a theatrical release because I would like I would have liked to have seen it on a big screen. I think it would have been worth paying to see that way. Regardless, I'm just glad that it found and uh, the audience that it found because that to me was top notch. The story is well told. Excellent acting in it. Great story. Well executed. I just liked everything about it. Netflix original. So. Uh, <clears throat> And that one is an, actually an exploration of the music world in the way that the Velvet Buzzsaw is kind of an exploration of the art world and the insider, uh, the insider business behind that. Yeah, I saw this a lot of parallels. This was a much more effective peek behind the scenes type of horror film, I think. Yeah, and I think it showed uh, the ridiculousness of, that, of the, the more extremists in that crowd the same way that the... That Velvet Buzzsaw tried to show the extremism and the ridiculousness of. Oh the yeah, I got where they were going for. It just didn't. It just fell flat for me. But I can definitely see the intent behind a lot of what was going on and the satire in the film. I just don't feel it was effective. Yeah, it was just not enjoyable at all. But the perfection was excellent. And if you haven't seen it, check it out on Netflix ASAP. Yes. And uh, the next one I went to see in the theater, Ma, directed by Tate Taylor. Not uh, a standout, but not one of the, but not bad either. Yeah, not a complete clunker. Just uh, uh, had a lot of problems with it. Uh, not uh, not very well executed horror, but uh, a movie of moments for sure. It had some decent horror moments and, and some decent dramatic moments as well. And Octavia Spencer is always good in in what no matter what she's in, she always delivers the goods. Yeah, mostly from her and Juliette Lewis is, are the ones that deliver them. The, mo- the biggest punch. Uh, the next one is a little movie I saw, The Lodge, the English kind of gothic horror film that I watched about the brother and sister with the big family curse. Mm-hmm. That was another one like, uh, uh, what was the other one that I said, The Hole in the Ground, where it's uh, not overly original, but just 
very well made, great cinematography, great script. It's just a solid film all the way through. Um, a slasher that came out this year that was decent but not great, Hellfest. Oh, okay. Uh, where the, the group of kids get caught in a, in a, a scare park mm-hmm. type of situation. And uh, it was it had some decent uh, inventive kills. Uh, I do like seeing a slash. Any anytime I see a slasher on the big screen, it's good. It just didn't deliver and and being as great as like something like Terrifier or I didn't even like it as well as the new Halloween. That's too bad. The last two that we've seen aren't exactly horror. Uh, one of them I was disappointed in. The other one I loved. The one I was disappointed in was Glass. I wish it would have had more horror than it had in it, and I guess it does have some horror elements, but a lot less. Than but it leans on the superhero formula <clears throat> a lot more heavily yeah. than the other films do, and for that reason, I don't think it's as much of a horror film. Yeah, where Split was a definite horror film, it seemed to be going in a horror direction, but he took it back toward uh, Unbreakable, but even more of a superhero type of feel to it. Oh, where okay. Where Unbreakable was a superhero movie in disguise of a, an effective drama with twists. Uh, that one was kind of lackluster for me. And the one I was really impressed with that wasn't exactly horror was Climax by Gaspar No. Now, w- we both discussed this before we started the podcast, putting this film on the list. And it's not technically a horror film, but I feel like it's going to p- appeal to a lot of horror fans and those with the sensibilities where if you enjoy the shocking or disturbing cinema of somebody like Lars von Trier and movies like The House That Jack Built or Antichrist or even the new wave of art house horror of what we've been discussing so much like Hereditary and The Witch, I really feel that Climax is something that you'll enjoy. It's from the same director of Irreversible and Enter the Void. And like we said, it's not a horror movie, but it's one of the most horrifying things I've seen in a good while. And it's probably it's in the running for being one of the top one or two movies I've seen this year so far, one in terms of how much I enjoyed it and how much I got out of it. It's very cinematic. The story revolves around a group of dancers in France having kind of like a party, like an after party after a successful dance. And the party gets uh, the juice at the party that everybody's drinking gets spiked with acid. And they're in the middle of somewhere very isolated Mm. and madness starts to uh, seep in. Some of these people are enjoying the trip and having a good time. Others are being horrified. Some of it leads to violence. It's extremely disorienting. The camera work always keeps you off kilter. It's so impressive. And it's horrifying almost after it starts to hit its more horrifying stages. I feel the film is relentless after that. It never lets up. And it makes you feel a little bit dirty sometimes or a little bit awful inside. So it has the feel of horror to me, and I feel that it's worth mentioning to our audience. I love the, the unique character development, how it starts where each one of the dancers is in like a confessional mm-hmm. where they're making some type of docu- documentary about this dance troupe. So you get to see these, these uh, emotionally vulnerable moments from each of the characters where it starts out they're kind of uh, hamming it up for the camera, and then throughout the interviews, you kind of see them revealing little things about themselves. More vulnerable aspects. Their yeah. hopes, their aspirations, their dreams. Yeah. And I think that makes the situation more horrifying because at the beginning, right up at the front, you've identified with some of these characters and understand their pain and their struggle. And that might sound like a cheap device just to have somebody confess just so you could get straight to it, but it's not. It works so fucking well. Yeah, and you aren't sure why you're being shown this at first. Like, what does this have to do with the movie? Why are they showing me this? These just, just random confessionals from these dancers. 
And between this and Suspiria, I think dance horror is going to be have its own place within the horror genre because it's all around dance and it has a lot of very like Suspiria, yes. which re- revolved around ballet and very physical, aggressive movements. These dancers are fucking impressive as hell. Yeah. Before we even get to a lot of the horror, you get to see a lot of the dancing and these the the cast that they picked really talented dancers like some of it goes on really long and i could see where this movie might lose a lot of people because there's a section of the movie that's just wild non-stop dancing for a certain portion before the horror and elements start to seep in and that part didn't bore me at all i was just fascinated by the contortions and the moves and everything that these people did and some of them keep dancing once the acid goes in you can see that the dancing starts to seem more sinister amidst all of the horror that's being uh, that's unfolding before your very eyes. Yeah, and there's these all seemingly innocent long dance numbers of them just going off and it seems a lot of it even improvisational. And then once it starts settling in and the and the drugs start taking a hold, they kind of fracture off into groups. Some of them are dancing, some of them are just tripping, some of them are being violent with each other, some of them are being sexual with each other. It's just an orgy of of sex and violence and insanity. insanity. Yeah. Oh yeah, we we both said it's, it's just yeah. all out insanity, and it's quite an experience. And you know what? It's probably my favorite Gaspar Noe film. I've always appreciated Gaspar Noe. Noe, I want to say his name, Gaspar Noe, a lot. The French filmmaker. I, I've always appreciated him as an artist a lot, and I really like what he does. And I think he's extremely talented. One of the most talented filmmakers in the world at this point. His movies are such unprecedented experiences. They're dizzying, they're horrifying, they're shocking. The editing and the camera work and the lighting is always inventive as all hell. He puts a lot into the physical look and feel of each and every one of his films, and they all take you on a journey, an emotional journey that puts you on the ringer. As much as I've always admired him as a filmmaker in the past, some of his stuff for me is not something that I look forward to watching on over and over again, like Irreversible. Yeah. A masterpiece, in my opinion, a fucking absolutely phenomenal piece of filmmaking from top to bottom. But it's not something I could just throw on because as it's done, I always feel shaken to my core by what I've just seen. Enter the Void actually makes me feel nauseous and a little sick, and it hits a little bit close to home in some of the more traumatic memories and the experiences that you have. Yeah. So as much as I've appreciated him, he's never made movies that I want to watch over and over again. I always want to see them because I always enjoy the experience and I enjoy being fucked with as an audience member. I enjoy having myself thrown around. I mean, that's why I enjoy movies. It's like, I want to see an artist's vision and I want them to take me wherever they want to take me. This is the first film of his that I could happily rewatch over and over. Mind you, this does not mean that this is a friendly film or like a happy Gaspar No film. It's it's extremely depraved, and for the average audience member, it's going to be a disturbing trip. But it's something that I could see myself watching multiple times in the future. It's a little bit more accessible. It's still horrifying. It still has that signature feel, but it's a little bit easier for me to digest than his other horror movies. So his other movies, I just call them horror. <laughs> None of his movies are actually horror, but they all feel like they're horror. And this, for me, is one that I see myself rewatching often in the future and showing to people. Whereas his other films, I actually have a copy of Irreversible and Enter the Void, and I enjoy them, but I never get the urge to show anybody. Them because I always have guests at my house and I show like showing movies. I never should throw that on because every time I'm about to go, put my hand towards, I'm like, 
I don't know if I want to experience that right now. And I always yeah. end up putting it back on the shelf. This is the first one where I could be very enthusiastically show it to a lot of people. It's the most accessible film to date. Yeah, it's it's frantic and disturbing, but it's very entertaining. Yeah, exhilarating really entertaining. just just to watch the way it unfolds. Definitely. For me, fuck it. It is kind of a horror movie in a certain way. And I and now we've talked about this already for a while, but I'd highly recommend it if you're into the new wave of art house horror. If you like Lars von Trier, this is something that's for you. I think the most impressive horror element of it is the element of no one knowing who spiked the punch with the acid or whatever it was. It was uh, I think it was a high concentrated form of acid, right? Yeah. And them not knowing who did it, and when they get the slightest inkling that someone did it, they jump on them like a like a pack of vultures. I thought that was a really Animalistic scary and predatory. Yeah, cuz one of my one of the scary thing for me is to be accused of something you didn't do and just just be uh ravaged by your peers over it. And that was just the next level type of of uh intensity right there. Yeah. Like they'd get just a little inkling that maybe that person spiked the bolt and they would just jump on them. I th- I thought that was horrific. Any of those situations cuz they ended up accusing like three or four people. And you feel bad for them because you know for a fact that this, for a fact, even though the movie doesn't exactly reveal who did it, the people that end up getting attacked and paying for it, you know for a fact that they didn't do it. Well, you don't know who did it, you know that it wasn't that person. And that makes it almost a little bit more fucked in the end, I think. Yeah, and and one of them has an innocent little boy. She has her son there with him. So so you're, you're kind of anxious over this little boy being in the middle of all this insanity and and he's kind of put in danger, and then she's accused of spiking the punch. It's just so memorable and so effective. Listen to this podcast, or I'll stab your eardrums with an ice pick. So that segues into our next uh, section of 2019 films, 2019 horror films that we missed. So we don't know if these are effective horror films or how good they are, but they are notable you know- releases. Normally, Mike and I pretty much watch anything that comes out, and not just in horror in general. I keep up with, we both keep up with films outside of the horror genre, even though that's what we specialize in. Yeah. Where we try to keep up with everything that's going on in movies throughout the year. We've actually been so busy with producing this podcast and with creating a show that airs weekly and editing and filming and stuff that we actually have not watched as many films that we normally would under different circumstances. I'm somebody who likes to visit the cinema as often as possible to see as many things as possible. So if it, this is not normal for us to have missed out on this many horror films. Well, just a sheer number of notable horror releases is seems to be rising every year. Definitely. So between that and us being extra busy this year, we unfortunately missed out on these. But we will be getting to them before the end of the year. Uh, one that does seem promising that I've heard mixed things about was The Dead Don't Die, the Jim Jaramouche uh, zombie comedy with Bill Murray. Yeah, star-studded cast. Uh, Adam Driver, uh, Chloe Sevigny. I'm interested in it. It's just Jim Jarmusch is an interesting filmmaker. I honestly don't always like what he does, but I appreciate him as an artist. And from what I understand, this falls heavier into the comedy category than it does horror. So and I've seen pretty mixed responses to it so far. It doesn't seem to have a clear consensus as to whether this is a good movie or not. Some people really love it and some people hate it. Sounds, well, like a typical Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah, and uh, some people are saying it's it's too much like Zombieland, but Zombieland is much more entertaining than this, where this one tries to be a little more tongue-in-cheek. And I think the fact that it's a tongue-in-cheek zombie picture 
with Bill Murray in it as well only yeah. reinforces those zombie land connections because that's two zombie horror comedy films that Bill Murray has appeared in. So that's one we have to check out and uh, judge for ourselves. Another one we... I can't believe I haven't watched it yet. I will get around to it. The Child's Play. Yeah. I didn't want to support it financially only because I've discussed it on the podcast because it's stepping on the original creator's toes, Don Mancini, and it's making it harder for him to get his own series off the ground. But it didn't actually do that well, not nearly as well as they expected it to. They released it on the same day as Toy Story 4 to do some kind of counter-programming. Yeah. To like, you know, if you don't want to see the cute doll movie, we got a good, we got a scary killer doll movie, and it didn't work. Toy Story 4 made $118 million. And it's opening weekend, and Child's Play made $14 million. It only went down from there. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like this is a franchise that's going to... The reboot franchise is going to have lasting power, but we'll see. But I am hearing more good things than I thought I would yeah. about it. I do want to see it, though, and a it lot, might be good. A lot of youngsters are saying, it's better than the original. I don't know about that. <laughs> I highly doubt that. I think they forgot how scary the original one was. In general... I'll say I've said it I've said it, I love the fucking Chucky franchise. Don't fuck with the Chuck. And a lot of horror franchises like Halloween and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre had much better opening films and like a lot of really bad sequels. This is one where I love Child's Play, it's a horror classic, but it's not as good as Halloween or some of the other ones. But it has been as a series, as of consistency, I think it's been better than virtually any other franchise. Like good film after good film. And only, as far as I'm concerned, the only one that is kind of a dud, and I enjoy it for nostalgic reasons, is Child's Play 3. I think the series has been consistent in its ability to reinvent itself and present itself as something new and expanding mythology and taking it in different directions. And not all of them might work for you because each one is so radically different from the next one. But I think there's a lot of love that goes into these films, and you could see it. There's a lot of love with Don Mancini, the original creator, who's been directing them for a while now. Yeah. and has written them all, has a very loyal band of performers like Brad Dourif, uh, the voice of Chucky, the Charles Lee Ray, and now his daughter, Fiona Dourif, who I actually enjoy quite a bit, and she does actually a really good imitation of her father, in oh, my cool. view, the way that she um, laughs and does it. Uh, Jennifer Tilly, all of them, I really enjoy the series, and I love that they're making it for fans, and it's not. you don't get a sense that when you watch these films that they're cash grabs. They seem like they're from the heart and that they're done for fans by somebody who enjoys making them for the fans. And it's for this reason I was a little upset over the Child's Play remake and how nobody involved in the original supported it. And this does seem like a cash grab. But we'll see. Yeah. We'll see if AI Chucky is scary. I mean, I'm willing to change my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to watch it and let it in and enjoy it. Yeah. I, I do hear it has a lot of cheesy elements, so I hope they were careful with those cheesy elements. I hope it was more self-aware than... Maybe accidentally cheesy. Possibly, but I'm a child's play loyalist. I'll always remain loyal to the original franchise because I love that Don Mancini has been consistently experimenting and yeah. reinventing the franchise from one film to the next. And it, the next one is one I was actually excited to see, but I didn't go see it just because I don't know anybody else who was interested in going to see it, <laughs> and I didn't want to go by myself. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. It stars... It's another one that we missed. Uh, Eleven, what's her name from Stranger Things? Eleven from Stranger Things. Yeah, I forgot her name. Uh, Millie Bobby Brown. Millie Bobby Brown, yes. And it's directed uh, uh, Michael Doherty, right? 
Was that him with the Trick or Treat guy? Yeah, Trick. Yeah, Michael yeah, Doherty, director thinking, of Trick or Treat and Krampus. I love Trick or Treat. I liked Krampus. But uh, this one was a flop. It didn't make as much money as it was anticipated. And I don't think... I don't, I don't remember if it got good reviews or not, but well, it, I, I didn't did hear see, anything too much about it. it. It didn't make that much money. Some of the critics were complaining that it was nothing but a bunch of fighting monsters, that it wasn't enough for the humans, but... That's what you go to see those kind of movies yeah, for. The last Godzilla, they complained that it was too much of the humans and not enough monsters, so they gave them what they want and people still complain. Well, I'll have to see this before I make any judgment calls on it, though, because I do like the director. Yeah, but the... The nerd in me that, that loved the cheesy Godzilla films growing up, just him fighting a different monster in each movie, that part of me is excited to see it because it looks just like a bunch of really cool effects with a bunch of giant monsters fighting. But it didn't work very well for Kong Skull Island, so hopefully it's better than that, a little more, a little deeper than that. Yeah. Uh, the next one I'm kind of excited to watch is The Prodigy. It's another creepy kid movie. Uh, Taylor Schilling from Orange is the New Black is the mom in it. So I forgot who the director is, but uh, that's one we've missed that looks uh, like it could be good. One, Another one I'd like to check out in the next couple of weeks is The Silence. It got a really bad rap on, uh, it came out on Netflix, Char- stars Stanley Tucci. 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 Stanley Tucci. Oh yeah, because I always call him Tucci Tucci. Tucci Tucci. <laughs> so Stanley Tucci and Kiernan Shipka from... Mad Men. This one got a big backlash because it's it seems to be just another takeoff on the the Quiet Place kind of idea, and Quiet Place and Bird Box, where and it's a Netflix one, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So where, it seems like Netflix is trying to get in on capitalize on the success of Bird Box and yeah. Quiet Place. And this one, just like the Quiet Place, as far as where it's it's creatures where you can't make a noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could it, see a trend creeping in. Yeah, I'm hoping it rises above that, those blatant similarities, but it is a completely separate story. It's based on a completely different book. So hopefully it just sounds convoluted and sounds derivative of The Quiet Place, but hopefully it's not. I do like those two actors. I like Kieran and Shipka. The next one uh, I'm not sure about is Escape Room. That seems like a throwaway kind of Cineplex studio cash grab, you know? Like, uh, they, they could take the success of Escape Rooms and they said, let's make a movie about it. And they hire a director and have them do it. It didn't seem like anything special, but I will give it a chance. Yeah, you never know. Two more that we missed this year. Uh, Lords of Chaos. Did you hear about that one? I've never even heard of this movie. I'll be perfectly honest. I don't even, doesn't ring a bell. It's, it's some, supposed to be somewhat of a true story about the black metal bands burning down churches in Switzerland. That's something that I've always found pretty interesting. Norway, I think. Norway, isn't it? Yeah. Like yeah, because Nor- I know a lot Norwegian of the, death metal the Norwegian black and death metal bands are legitimate Satanists and go around burning down churches and actually doing insane things. So that's actually right for a horror film, I think. Yeah. And it stars uh, Kieran Culkin. And from what I understand, it's not exactly a horror film, just horrific things happen, but it's not presented in a horror way. And people were really divided on that one. So that's one where people are either loving it or just completely hating it. So that's a divisive one I'd like to check out very soon. And the last one is Bloodfest. Not to be confused with Hellfest that we already mentioned. This one is, it's a similar story from Hellfest where they go to this large horror festival and they start getting picked off one by one. But it looks looks to be like almost like a scream-like where a lot of the main characters... 
like their whole life is horror, and that's all they really relate to is horror films. So they oh, up, so it's a little self-aware then. Yeah, so they end up using their horror knowledge to survive this uh, this killer that's at Bloodfest. It looks better than Hellfest, but we'll see on that one. You're listening to Ghost Man and Rivera's Horror Show Podcast. Coming up next, we got all the stuff coming soon, which is quite a bit. I have to say the the lineup <clears throat> for the second half of the year as far as horror films goes. A lot of them that I've watched so far, I did expect a lot of them to be impressive, so I was let down. So hopefully I won't be as let down by the rest of these. But there's a lot of promising releases coming out, uh, including three from Hell. And I'm a little confused with this release date. We were looking up the release date, and it's going to be released on September 16th, 17th, and 18th in 900 select theaters, and it has no information besides that. That's some fucking bullshit. I'm going to say it right now, only because the from when I, when I went to go see The Devil's Rejects when it was playing in theaters, I saw it a few times, and it was always a full audience of people watching it. And it, from what I understand, it was actually a financial success, and it worked. And I, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Every year, I see less and less original horror, f- uh, res- no, original films in general playing at movie theaters, and I feel like I have to travel far to see everything. Luckily, we lived um, near L.A., so we can jump on the freeway, but even then, that's a fucking chore. I wish I could just go down to the local cinema and see something I want to see now that isn't based on a comic book or a yeah. pre-existing property. So when I read that, I was like, you got to be shitting me. You're going to make this movie hard to see. It's... All these notable releases don't get wide theatrical distribution anymore, yeah. and it's starting to make the theater a less fun place to visit. Because every time I go, it's it's Aladdin, it's a new Avengers, and don't get me wrong, I actually really enjoy the Marvel movies, and I love the Avengers Endgame, so I'm not trashing them. It's just upsetting that that's all you see at these and, cineplexes, and that's all these big studios put any faith in. That's, it's it's the only one that they that they make a big uh, impressive marketing push for anymore. Yeah. And this, the sure things. The sure things. There's not less experimentation, people taking chances and everything. So when I heard that Rob Zombie's latest Three from Hell, which I am very much looking forward to, wasn't going to be playing everywhere, I was annoyed. I'm like, damn it, I'm going to have to make a trip out of this one. This isn't, I just can't go to the movies and go see this. It seems almost like he, he lost some of the trust of the distributors. So I hope it's not a thing where they're just rolling it out on, on a, they want it to prove itself first. Like, the, mm-hmm. let's release it in select theaters. Well, see how it does. 900 theaters isn't that select. No, it's but still it's... quite a few. But it's still like a third of, of a major release. That's a third of the amount of theaters in a major release. And it's only for a few days. So yeah. it's a limited one. So are they going to roll this out to direct to video? And don't get me wrong. I mean, I've loved some of the films <clears> that have only played in select theaters, like Drag, Dragged Across Concrete, uh, S. Craig Zoller's latest, which might be my favorite movie of the year. And it just disappoints me that these films don't come to uh, to every multiplex like they used to. And I notice this trend every year. There's less and less original films playing. So it's clear that the studios the studio doesn't think that it's going to be a huge success. But do we think that? Oh, I really don't care what the studio says. Yeah. I want to see it because I want to see it. I mean, do you think it's going to have that initial success? Do you think it's going to roll out in these theaters these three days and it come out and be a huge success and say oh you shit think, that's I think it, wide. i think it might be a success only for the fact that it's since like i said this isn't the it's not the worst release in the world where it's only playing in select select theaters but i think that it's playing in a few enough theaters that there's a lot of people who are looking forward to this movie 
I imagine that those theaters are going to be full because it's so rare in so many theaters that people will travel from far to see it or a lot of people are going to want to ah, see it. So in that way, it might be a good thing, actually. It might be a success. And who knows? And if word of mouth goes around, they might just roll it out to more theaters. And if it's as hardcore as some of his past, like the House of a Thousand Corpses and the Devil's Rejects, I think some of the depravity will just start a word of mouth. I that, think. that could be a reason for the slow rollout as well. It might be a strategic move, but we don't know at this point. It'll be interesting no matter what happens on that one. Another one that will be interesting, I don't care what happens, is The Lighthouse. It just screened at the Cannes Film Festival, but there's no official release date. But it was overwhelmingly positive reaction at Cannes. It has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I've heard, and I, everything I read about it, I'm excited. It's shot in black and white. It stars Willem Dafoe who I fucking love, one of our greatest, finest actors. Robert Pattinson, who's proved himself as an actor, as now he stepped out of the Twilight Shadow. Yeah. And it's directed by Robert Eggers, director of The Witch, my favorite, favorite horror movie of the last decade. And I keep reading that this one has intensity to spare, and I hear that the performances are absolutely phenomenal. And we knew and that I, that was going to be the case. So this one I am, without reservation, fucking excited for. I'm not even worried about overhyping it. I'm sure it's going to deliver. It's one of those rare instances where I feel no reservation getting hyped up about it in my mind. Just like uh, Midsommar, th- this is probably the second most anticipated horror film for me after Midsommar. For me, this was the number one. And here's a, a difference between Midsommar and this one. Is Midsommar has made a little bit more clear what it's about from the trailers, even though it doesn't really spoil the movie. The Lighthouse is kind of a mystery. I don't know what it is. So I feel like I can't overhype it because I have no conception of where this is going, what it is, what it's going to be like. Yeah, is it supernatural? Is it violent? Like, we don't even know. Midsommar, on the other hand, made very clear that it was a cult film that takes place in an area where daylight doesn't seem to come to an end, no matter what time it is. Yeah. This one has, the marketing has been very mysterious so far, so I'm not worried about overhyping it, hype, overhyping it for this reason. It's just two powerhouse actors at a lighthouse. That's all we know right now. I'm excited. And we, we know it's going to be a period piece and that it's going to be intense dramatically, but we have no details besides that, and that's why I like it. Yeah. Because I, I deliberately avoided details on Midsommar too because I already knew the basic premise of it. And I just wanted Ari Aster just to take me on that ride. That's what I want from Robert Eggers. Just take me on that ride. I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll go along for whatever he does. Yeah, exactly. And I have a feeling it's going to be different from The Witch too. I oh have yeah. A feeling he's going to change it up like Ari Aster did, where it's obvious it's that director, but I think he's going to take you in a different direction. I could hope for nothing less. It's definitely a different setting. Yeah. You, you go from deep woods to the ocean. Mm-hmm. I just... think he's really going to do some cool things with it. And one that I'm not so hyped for, but there's a chance it could be good. Black Christmas is coming out December 13th. We discussed that last week. I'll be checking it out. I, that's one where I don't feel one way or another. It could be good, could be bad. We won't know until it comes out. Yeah, and that, that su- surprise announcement, that could be a good thing and it could be a bad thing. I'm hoping it's a good thing. Yeah. I'm going to trust Jason Blum on this one. I have to tell you, it's got to be better than that last remake. If it isn't, then it's a failure. Yeah. I I mean, will they do the same type of thing that made Black Christmas great? A lot of the first person type of thing and that you never know who the killer is, stuff like that? 
I hope that they are faithful to it, but it reinterpreted enough in a way that it's not just the same movie over again. Uh, next highly, highly anticipated 2019 horror film is the one we discussed already in the news, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. It comes out August 9th. Every bit of the trailers I've seen for that have been effective, and they felt like the stories made me feel when I read them. It seems to be very traditional campfire story type of movie. We'll just see how they tie it together, though. Yeah, and after uh, Autopsy of Jane Doe, I'll follow that director anywhere, just see what he does. It, his scares are highly effective without a lot of, uh, using a lot of tropes. He uses uh, uh, visuals and, and, and uh, music in a very effective way. Uh, the next one is probably my, uh, my own most anticipated besides Mid, uh, Midsommar and the White House. I already know what it is. Dr. Sleep, November 8th. I am fucking hyped as hell for this one. I'm almost excited as I am for The Lighthouse for this one, to be honest, because I've been loving the career trajectory of Mike Flanagan so far. I think he has a really impressive body of work within the horror genre. I see him growing every time, and I'm fucking so impressed with him, not only as a filmmaker, but the balls he had to do this. Because... We, we talked about it on the podcast a few weeks back, and we watched the trailer live on the, on the podcast, yes. and I was kind of shocked to see so many references to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, because Dr. Sleep was written within the past as a newer novel, and because Stephen King notoriously despises Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which is too bad because it's a phenomenal film, but I get it, it's not a faithful ad- adaption of it at all, he wrote Dr. Sleep with the intention to deliberately ignore the Stanley Kubrick version of The Shining and only to follow his version. And Mike Flanagan actually approached him and told him that he wants to adapt this novel. He said he's going to make it very faithful, but he said it's going to take place within the Stanley Kubrick universe of The Shining, which is something really ballsy to do because it's always been a very sore topic for Stephen King. I'm sure, well, he doesn't like it. He has to endure decades of everybody referring to it as a classic or one of the all-time greats or as a masterpiece. So he actually talked him into adapting a book that was deliberately made to ignore it, incorporate it. And not only that, since the movie, uh, The Shining, the Stanley Kubrick's, the design of it, the look of it, the shots and everything belonged to Kubrick, the visuals of it. So not only did he get permission from Stephen King to put it in a universe for a movie that he supposedly hates, he actually is collaborating with the Kubrick estate, Kubrick's wife, is allowing him access to the designs, the look, and everything so he could create a faithful vis- vision of, you know, th- that it's believably in the same universe. And that took balls. He says that he intends to reconcile the Stanley Kubrick version of The Shining with the Stephen King version of The Shining, and it has Stephen King's blessing. And why not? I mean, he did such a great job with Gerald's Game, a book that even I thought was not adaptable, and he really did a bang-up job with it. And Stephen King actually did really appreciate Gerald's game. And he also loved his recent miniseries, The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah. So this one is, I'm impressed with this. I, I, I would watch anything Mike Flanagan does, but I'm particularly impressed that he had the balls to do what he did with this film and to approach Stephen King and tell him that he was going to make it in, a, in this universe. That I have to give kudos and props to. And it's one of the rare cases where I would ever accept a sequel to a Stanley Kubrick movie, mainly because it does originate from Stephen King. Yeah. And if anybody can do it and pull it off, I have faith that Mike Flanagan can. And I do realize that 
Stephen King's ultra sensitive about it, and and I think he has reason to be sensitive about it. But is it's really the only thing that makes sense to this story, is to tie it in with the the only other cinematic t- telling of this story that we know of, and we we know of this character from being in Pop. Kubrick's Shining. Let's be honest. That's why it remains so relevant in pop culture is because of the film. It's the film that has become a massive influence in pop culture. There are a few films that I think that have been as parodied as The Shining. I've seen it parodied on The Simpsons, yeah. on South Park, in movies, and TV shows. Like It has so permeated the cultural consciousness that I don't really think that there's a way around it. Even if you don't like it, it has to be acknowledged. Yeah. Its influence is massive. If you're doing a movie about Danny Torrance and you ignore the first film, even though Stephen King hated it, it's just not going to feel right. It's not going to sit right with viewers. Not only that, I imagine general audiences want that story to continue because that's what most people who are familiar with The Shining are familiar with the movie. Yeah. So I'm interested in seeing what he does with this because he's going to be faithful to the Doctor Sleep, to the Stephen King one, and I already know he'll he's good at adapting King material without altering it and still making it his own. Yeah. And he also said he studied the original, The Shining, a lot, and he's going to avoid jump scares on this one, where he wants to just to be suffocating atmosphere. So he studied the techniques that Kubrick used in his film. So that only excites me even more. Cool. And, of course, Stephen King always is a phenomenal storyteller, and he's, uh, his stories are the backbone, as we've said before, of so many great, not just horror films, just movies in general. His stories and his storytelling has been the backbone for some of the greatest films ever made. Yeah, and, and Mike Flanagan started out great, and he just gets more impressive with each one. So he, he's just a joy to watch, and I love following him from movie to movie because it's always impressive. And it's also the Ewan McGregor factor. I think he's a phenomenal actor. Yeah. And picking him as your lead to take up the Danny Torrance mantle was an ace move as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, because he's been in some of my favorite films of all time. and Train hoping- Spotting, yeah. one of my all-time favorite movies. And Shallow Grave. Which Danny- is another excellent film. Danny Boyle's first film, Shallow Grave. Yeah. Oh, love it. And uh, Life Less Ordinary. Mm-hmm. Just a great actor. The next uh, highly anticipated 2019 horror film is It Chapter 2. Some comes out September 5th. The trailer is great because we, we watched the trailer on the show before. It's just that really creepy scene with Beverly visiting the house, an old house, and talking to an old lady who slowly unfolds, becomes more sinister. Yeah. I really enjoyed the first It a lot. And I think Andy Muschietti really did a fantastic job with that one. So I imagine he's going to do another good job with this one. And hopefully he'll stick the landing, you know, do have a more satisfying ending than the original television miniseries had. Yeah, and I've anticipated this one ever since the last one ended, and I was really impressed with so, it. So It Chapter 2 and Doctor Sleep, yeah. the Stephen King revival is very, very real, and I couldn't be happier. Yeah, Stephen King's going to end up being a major part of 2019. Oh, hell, and he was already a major part of 2017. Yeah. He's... I feel like there's been a resurgence, a renaissance in Stephen King films, too, where they've always been around. The adaptions have been in miniseries, movies, and stuff. But with the horror renaissance, people saw a Stephen King renaissance as well. Yeah, and they're on these Stephen King stories are on such a roll that Dark Tower came out and just completely flopped, and people didn't care. Let's move on to the next Stephen King thing. Yeah. <laughs> that, so, d- that didn't seem to slow down people's interest at all. One day we're going to have to do a podcast special on the career of Stephen King. Yes. One of the, one of the, one of, I don't like being hyperbolic, but one of the gods 
of horror. One of the few people have contributed as much to the horror genre as Stephen King. And that topic will take a lot of research because oh, there is man. a lot mm-hmm. of Stephen King influence that permeates through horror. Stranger Things is another one that exactly. just came out. That's a total Stephen King tribute in so many ways. Yeah. And uh, the next one is another uh, great director who's uh, got another anticipate, highly anticipated release coming out, Crawl. Alexander Aja. And that's coming out July 12th about alligators. We watched a trailer on here. <clears throat> trailer gives away a lot. Yeah. Let's be honest. It probably gives away a little bit too much. But hopefully it's entertaining. The The Hills Have Eyes remake is actually really excellent. Yeah. And I also really enjoy High Tension, just the brutality and insanity behind it. So I hope he can deliver the same level of brutality because that's kind of what I come to expect out of his films under a, a ridiculous B-movie concept. Yeah. And I liked his, uh, I even liked his Piranha movie, even though it was silly and over the top. This one's going to be as silly and over the top as that one was. That This seems to be more serious and intense. Tune in to Ghostman and Rivera's Horror Show podcast or I'll slice your fingers off. With Crawl, I, I see that the trailer does give away the plot and many plot points as well. But uh, the only thing I can figure is there's so much in it that they showed that much and still have a lot of movie left to go. But imagine, that it, 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 Matt, I'm going to be very disappointed if it's not the case and the trailer told the whole story. I know. <laughs> but hopefully it's the experience. You know, I mean, it's a B-movie concept, so hopefully the experience of it is what matters, not how much you know about it. Yeah, and I like how it's the the natural disaster kind of horror mixed with monster mixed with a monster movie because basically this area gets completely flooded, and then alligators move in and start eating the people that are trying to survive the flood. Sounds funny, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next anticipated horror film of 2019 is Zombieland Two: Double Tap, October 11th, directed by Ruben Fleischer. Same director as number one. We just spoke about that movie a little bit earlier. Yeah. We'll see where it goes. I don't. I never really thought that. I enjoyed Zombieland. It was a fun lark, but it's not something that to me requires a sequel. But if they can find a good angle and make it entertaining, why not? Yeah, it, it just, it literally just seems like an extension of the first movie, like they could all be one long movie. It doesn't seem like it's going to tackle anything new. I hope it will. But if it's also an extension of the first one, I'll enjoy it because I love the characters. I love this the way this director directs the, humor. the film. Yeah, I love his humor. The uh, actors he chose seem to fit his humor really well. Woody Harrelson. Yeah. Jesse Eisenberg. And if there wasn't just the sheer volume of great horror coming out, I'd be more excited. But I'm still excited for Zombieland too. Yeah, but it's more towards the bottom of my list considering what we have to look forward to. Yeah. As of right now... Uh, as of right now, it's Lighthouse, Doctor Sleep, and It Chapter 2 are the ones that are on my radar that I really want to jump on the instant that they're released, kind of like with Midsommar. So that's a lot to look forward to. And uh, the rest of these that we're going to mention, they're not as anticipated as the others, but they are releases, uh, notable releases that could be good if they're done right. Uh, the first one is a New Mutants on August 1st. I don't have a great feeling about this one. Did you hear about all the reshoots? The reshoots, it sounds like Suicide Squad all over again. Yeah, and they were really talking it up about the the main concept of this one was, or the main draw of it was going to be it's going to be a rated R superhero horror film. And then I think after some other ones came out that weren't as successful, like Brightburn and Venom. Venom was somewhat successful, but it really wasn't uh, as 
horror as they first initially said it was going to be either. As a horror film, it's not very effective. Yeah, exactly. So the reshoots tell me that maybe it was too intense and then maybe they They're decided... They're going to soften it and ruin it. Yeah, maybe they decided not to go so R, so hard R. I mean, I don't know. Fox has a mixed record as far as the X-Men films go for me. Some of them are actually fantastic. Yeah. I love Logan. I love X-Men Days of Future Past and X-Men 2. Yeah. Some of them are... I'm not going to start naming names, but some of them are awful. So I, this could either be really good or really bad, but the reshoots indicate something bad. Yeah, there's been a lot of mixtures with superheroes and horror lately, and it hasn't been a good track record so far. And New Mutants is shaping up to not to be any better. Yep. So there's always hope. Uh, one I hold out some hope for that might actually be good is 47 Meters Down Uncaged. Now, I didn't like the first one just because, mostly because of the script, and there was some really clunky storytelling in it and some clunky scenes. But I can't deny how scary as hell the shark scenes were. Mm -hmm. Really realistic, implementing a lot of real shark footage to make the attacks more uh, grounded. And if they take those same type of attacks and add them to a better story, which is, uh, I guess, a group of divers. It's the same director as the first one. And a group of uh, divers going into an underground city. And I guess they get trapped in that, un not, not underground, underwater city. So they get trapped in an underwater city with sharks. Well, we'll see. Yeah, that one could go either way. Uh, the next one sounds interesting. I just heard about it today. It's Darlin coming out on July 12th. It's a direct sequel to Lucky McKee's The Woman. Lucky McKee is the director of May. Excellent horror film. Very good horror film. And The Woman is very good, too. But uh, this is a direct sequel of The Woman, but it's directed by Pollyanna McIntosh, who played The Woman in the original. So that'll be interesting to see a Lucky McKee movie, uh, a, a sequel to a Lucky McKee movie directed by the lead actress. It looks somewhat divisive so far, but uh, judging by who's seen it so far and a couple of uh, reviews have come in. So I, th I hope that will be good. Another one... Uh, that features, you know how Lucky McKee was part of the Masters of Horror thing? So some of the other Masters of Horror got together and did an anthology movie called Nightmare Cinema. That's coming out February 14th on Valentine's Day. It's an anthology horror film that unites the Masters of Horror, including Joe Dante, Mick Garris, and David Slade, who directed 30 Days of Night, Hard Candy, Hannibal, American Gods, and some uh, episodes of Black Mirror. And Breaking Bad. Yes. And of course, his his biggest achievement is Twilight so the Twilight Saga. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. He also did direct that. Anthology horror films are a big craze right now. A lot of them are coming out, so hopefully this will be one of the good ones. I, I did like the Masters of Horror mm -hmm. series, so this hopefully this will be along those lines. Uh, the next one is Ready or Not. It's coming out August 23rd. It's about a bride's wedding night that takes a sinister turn when her eccentric new in-laws force her to take part in a terrifying game. Mm -hmm. That sounds interesting. Uh, not really much to get excited about, just a, a cool interesting premise. premise. Yeah, interesting premise. Uh, the last three aren't so anticipated. By us, we, anyway. Yeah. We got Brahms, The Boy 2. It, that's Who's, such an awful title, too, Brahms, yeah, and The who Boy thought, 2. 
that movie needed a sequel. I mean, the first one was decent. Lauren Cohan was good in it. It wasn't a horrible movie, but it wasn't. It's that... kind of forgettable, though, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I guess the title is better than Boy the Boy Two Brahms. <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking. Whatever. I, it's not something I even care to see that much. But It just whatever. makes me giggle that they're even making it. It's so funny. The title makes me giggle. <laughs> it, it's always funny when, when they take a mediocre movie and make a sequel to it. Imagine but, this ends up being the Ouija 2 of the franchise. <laughs> I know. Could you imagine? <laughs> well, then we'll have to eat our words. Yeah. And by the way, when I'm wrong about a movie that I think it's going to be bad and it turns out to be good, I'm always happy to eat my words. I'm not going to... Oh, I'm gonna stick to what I said. No, if yeah, it's good, fuck it. I, I recognize that sometimes I'm a hater, but I'm I'm willing to give let, something a chance. Let go of that hate when I'm watching it, you know, mm-hmm. and just give it a a good a good chance. Uh, another one I'm not too excited about is the Jacob's Ladder remake. Again, it could be good. It comes out August 23rd, but I just can't see a remake to that one being effective. The the it's first too one's too original, holy. too unique. Yeah, too wholly original, too much of a of a surreal mind trip. Surreal high concept movies are not things that are primed for remakes. Anything directed by David Lynch or like movies like 2001 a Space Odyssey or even Tarantino movies, they're yeah. so what makes them good is so specific to the style and the sensibility that they were shot with that you really can't hope to recreate that sense. Yeah, cuz the the first one I don't think would have worked if not for Tim Robbins and the director. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a, a perfect storm of mindfuckery, you yeah. know? And I can't see that being duplicated, but I was proven wrong on Suspiria, so I could be proven wrong on this one. Hopefully we eat our words again. And our final, final one, uh, the reason why we're mentioning it last is the release date has not can, been confirmed, but Fede Alvarez is definitely working on Don't Breathe 2. I don't like the idea of that. I love I don't, don't Breathe. I really like Don't Breathe, and I even like the Evil Dead remake a lot, which you didn't like. To me, that's one of the better horror remakes. At this point, I don't think Don't Breathe really calls for a sequel. It's not a movie that needs a sequel. And I, such a talented filmmaker, such effective filmmaker, I don't really see... I wish he would do something original. I mean, yeah. if it turns out good, it turns out good. But this is not where I want to see Fede Alvarez going. I mean, Don't Breathe did set itself up for a sequel, but I think it's more effective just wondering... What happened? When when you're left wondering what was the fate of that old man and if he was going to come back and uh, come after Jane Levy, you know? Yeah, but the filmmaker's talented, the premise is tired, but we'll see. Uh, Earthquake. We are having an earthquake right now in the middle of this podcast. It is very light and it's only gently swaying. Whoa. That was a nice little jerk. It is mm. still shaking. All right. We'll see where this goes. We're riding out the earthquake. Earthquake, it just started shaking a little bit more. And it's shaking more. And on that note, we would like to end the podcast. Happy horror. Holy shit. Hi, I'm Elliot. You're listening to Ghost Man and Rivera's Horror Show Podcast. Okay, folks, we actually uh, had paused the podcast for a second, and we kind of signed off, but um, we just had an earthquake at the end of our podcast, and we're in Southern California, so we're used to it. I, myself, don't get too afraid of earthquakes unless they reach a certain point. We had another earthquake on the 4th of July. Yeah. It was very a soft earthquake, I'd say, because it just kind of gently swayed back and forth, and it didn't make me nervous. I just waited. I was like, okay, I'm going to wait this out, and I'm not going to get nervous or panicky until it hurt, hit a certain point. And that's how I was right now. But when Michael said, oh, shit, and right before that, there were a couple of hard jerks. 
Yeah. That did raise my blood pressure a little bit. Yeah, and there's, uh, I thought just maybe the studio was going to come crashing down on us. That's kind of where we kind of signed off because the, the light above us was swinging back and forth, and that's the first time I've ever known it to shake enough to swing that light back and forth. Yeah. So the consequences in living of living in beautiful, sunny Southern California comes with its drawbacks. And it was shaking, Earth, shaking enough to be slightly nauseating right there. Yeah, I, my heart started racing a little bit. I, I'm kind of immune to a lot of earthquakes where yeah. I just let it pass and just move on. That one just did give me a little bit of a scare. So, <laughs> And isn't there a bit of a scare in Southern California that the, the big one's on its way? Because the one on 4th of July was like a 6.6. And then it was projected that some of the aftershocks might be even worse. I think this was one of our aftershocks because it was definitely a harder one. Hopefully, yeah. we don't get too many of these. Yeah. So we just wanted to come back on and do a proper sign-off. We were kind of in the middle of wondering if the studio was going to come crashing down when we ended before. So, <laughs> Well, with that said, happy horror, folks. Happy horror, everyone. Happy horror, everyone.